0: This is episode six of the Investors Podcast.
1: Broadcasting from Bel Air, Maryland, this is the Investors Podcast. They'll take complex things and make them seem insanely simple. They make your boring drive to work feel exhilarating. They give you
0: actionable investing strategies. Your host, Preston Pish and Stig Broederson. All right. Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is Preston Pish, and I'm accompanied by my co-host Stig Brodersen. And today we have another, yet another special guest, and we've got Rob McCurry with us. And he's going to be talking to us about interest rates and how important interest rates are in market collapses and how the how it impacts our economy overall. So a very, very important subject. And before we uh, start that discussion with Rob, I just kind of want to open up and. Talk in a very high level, um, overarching uh, strategy and idea of how interest rates play into our economy and uh, to us as investors. So, um, Stig and I kind of pull our understanding of interest rates uh, from the way Warren Buffett looks at it. And uh, it'll be interesting to talk with Rob, who's a VP at a major uh, bank here in, in the U.S., um, who manages all the risk uh, for, that, for that particular bank and kind of get his opinion on interest rates after we have this uh, general discussion and overview at the beginning. So really two segments here. I'm just going to open up, have a quick segment on um, just Warren Buffett's opinion on interest rates. And then uh, the second segment, we'll talk with Rob and see uh, what his opinions are and and how it relates to uh, the Warren Buffett approach. So the first thing that we're going to discuss is the three critical variables and the three basically phases of how interest rates impact the boom-bust cycle of the market. So whenever you're looking at how the market proceeds, you have uh, these periods where you have these deep recessions or mild recessions, and then you have these boom cycles where stocks are very highly priced and everyone in the market seems to be fairly happy. And so uh, our opinion, and and we base this on Buffett's opinion, is that interest rates play an enormous role in controlling that, okay? Okay. And so whenever the market crashes, what happens is is the Federal Reserve adjusts interest rates that they're extremely low in order to spark spending and uh, it pushes the, the, the money out into the economy so people spend that money and, and it sparks the economy. Then when as, as the economy recovers and things start doing better and, and businesses are able to uh, have better earnings, what happens is, is the Federal Reserve slowly starts adjusting things in order to raise those interest rates. And as those interest rates rise, uh, the the economy becomes primed, if you will, for a potential crash. The timing of that crash is something that uh, I would argue no one could really predict when that's actually going to happen. Um, but as those interest rates continue to climb and continue to get higher, what happens is, is it makes it harder and more difficult for businesses to continue to finance their debt as that interest rate cl- climbs higher. So think of it from the business's perspective. When interest rates are low, let's call it 2 or 3% that they can borrow money at, it's very easy for them to do business. They can borrow and buy you know, inventory and create materials and services, and it's very cheap for them to do that because the money that they're borrowing, the interest that's associated with that money that they're borrowing is really cheap. Now, as the economy improves and in those interest rates on that money that they're borrowing, it continues to go higher. What happens for that company is they then start to become handicapped because they're used to this, call it 3% rate, and now they're having to pay a 6 or 7% rate. It's harder for them to do business and to uh, operate. And so what happens is, is this continues to rise and rise, this interest rate. The economy starts to slow down. Earnings don't continue to be at the level that they're at and maybe even start to drop. Okay? And then that's where we would, would like to say, and Buffett would like to say, that the, that the economy becomes primed for a change and for a recession to occur. And so then what it needs at that point is a catalyst. okay? And that catalyst could be anything. And who knows what the catalyst will be and when it'll actually occur. Okay, We don't know that. It could be uh, like back in 9-11, whenever the World Trade Centers were hit by terrorists. That was a catalyst and you saw the market which was already primed from the uh, internet bubble that catalyst shocked the system and brought it into a collapse okay so that's kind of the the overarching theme the big picture look at interest rates and how the federal reserve is adjusting those interest rates and kind of how the boom bust cycle occurs and how you really don't know when that catalyst is going to be induced into the system whenever it's primed with high interest rates and you know, difficult debt levels for businesses when, it's actually going to, when that collapse is going to take place. So that's our intro. That was the uh, first segment. And now what we're going to do is the part that I really want to do so I can shut up and we can bring our guest on here, which is Rob McCurry. Um, And Rob, and so we're moving into the second segment here. And so Rob, uh, he's a graduate of West Point. Rob and I actually went to college together. So um, Rob and I know each other for quite a few years now. And he uh, is from Western Pennsylvania. He's a big Steelers fan. And I'm from Western Pennsylvania, and we used to drive home uh, whenever, you know, Christmas break or whatever, Rob and I would ride back to Western Pennsylvania together. So we know each other pretty well. So that's uh, where Rob and I had originally met. Um, after he graduated from West Point, he uh, became a captain in the military intelligence community in the uh, U.S. military. Uh, he got his MBA from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. Uh, Now, uh, and then after he got his uh, MBA, he went as a senior consultant at Ernest & Young and a couple other uh, major companies. Uh, And now he's a vice president for risk management at a top 10 consumer bank in America. So Rob is doing quite well for himself, and uh, he has a lot of uh, important information. He's extremely knowledgeable. And the thing we're going to be talking about with Rob is interest rates. So Rob, my first question, uh, did you have anything you wanted to add on the, uh, on the background or anything else that I, that I might have missed?
2: Hey, thanks for having me, guys. No, the only thing I would add is that on those trips back and forth from West Point, we were in a canary yellow uh, Corvette that Preston acquired uh, in college. So just to paint <laughs> that picture for your, for your listeners about uh, who's running this investors podcast, that's the guy.
0: <laughs> Thank you, Rob. Now I'm embarrassed. All right. So the uh, the first question. Let's move right past that, uh, Rob. I briefly described our opinion on interest rates, but we're we're interested to hear your perspective. Do you see them as a critical variable to the boom bust cycle, like I had described?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I think one thing, kind of where I would like to to go with the discussion, is really about that that critical uh, part that interest rates play uh, in the boom bust cycle. And to understand that, I think what you have to think about is what's driving those interest rates. And so in banking, what we're relying on is, is the rates that the Fed uh, sets for banks to lend to each other, or which influence the rates that banks lend to each other, right? And so that's considered the federal funds rate. And so for your listeners, that's kind of the key rate that when you hear about you know, whether the interest rates are rising or falling... It's the Federal Reserve that kind of sets that policy. And for the banking industry, if you think about what we do at its core, we're taking capital and deploying it out into the economy at the rate that the market sets and that the Fed influences to mom and pop, to companies that want to invest and grow. And the the way that we can do that is to, at the cost of capital, make loans for those businesses to grow so that's really the engine of the economy and i think when you think about interest rates and how they affect boom bust cycle that's really at the core of it where the fed plays in and how everybody's focused on where are the interest rates going because we want to try to predict where in that cycle are we and so one of the key predictors is what's the cost of capital set by the fed so that banks can take that capital deployed into the market for businesses to 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 grow. And, and hey, so I think that's kind of a key component that not a lot of you know investors think about or, or kind of your common person, the key role that banks play in that in that exchange of value.
0: So Rob, I sorry I stepped on you a few times there. I was trying to chime in on this one point. I think a lot of people don't realize that banks um, can lend out more than they have sitting in their in their account from uh, you know everyday investors that come in and put money into the bank. So if I come to your bank and I give you ten dollars to put into an account, you, depending on what uh, reserve ratio the Fed gives you, let's say that the reserve ratio is ten to one. Um, if I come in and I give you $10, that bank now has the ability to lend out $100 instead of just the $10 that I put into the bank. And I think a lot of people don't realize that, that you guys can lend out more than what you actually have from, from you know, customers. Is that correct?
2: Yeah, that's exactly right. And, it, and that, that plays into the bank's leverage ratio uh, it it plays into something very critical on the balance sheet, which is your deposits to loans ratio. Mm-hmm. And so internally in the bank and in risk management, we look at that uh, because we don't want to be over leveraged. We want to be leveraged at a, a rate that we're comfortable with. But you're exactly right. So we, we take and that's really you know part of how the economy grows is based on leverage and how banks um, are willing to, based on the deposits they have and, and the rates that the Fed sets, um, manage their capital and the credit risk of the borrower, which is really the key component there. Right. So, you know, we could be if we if we had perfect credit on the borrower side, meaning that we knew 100 percent that whoever we lent money to was going to repay us on time and at full value. You know, we, we could lever- leverage ourselves well beyond what we do today. Um, and but we know that's not true. Right. That the, the credit quality of those borrowers is not always uh, 100%. And so we have to uh, manage that risk and make those decisions based on, you know, the strength of the economy, the likelihood of the borrowers to repay uh, based on their credit history, um, and how leveraged we want to be. And so th- those are some of those important variables that, that we have to consider. Yeah.
3: Um, Rob, so as you can probably hear that Preston and I, we are pretty keen on interest rate and leverage. Um, and catalyst events as the tr- critical drivers for the boom and bust cycles. Do you have any any other factors that you would like to to add to that list?
2: Yeah, that's you know I would say that kind of the three big ones. I would say I would point to interest rate. I mean, it's the topic you know we're discussing. It's it's key. You hear about it every day if, if you're if you're reading the Wall Street Journal or if you're listening to an update on Bloomberg. Um, you know, interest rates play such a big role. Uh, and, and the reason for that is it's the, it, it influences the cost of capital, uh, which, which cascades to all the businesses who are, you know, borrowing money uh, to, or raising money to uh, deploy into the market to grow and, and to create jobs. Um, you know, I think the other thing I would, I would point to is uh, the ease of credit, right? So we remember after the, the crash in 08 uh, that credit uh, constricted. A little bit. And and folks were concerned about that because, um, you know, that spigot of credit in order for the for the economy to really grow and expand has to be uh, turned on. Uh, If it isn't, things really start to break down uh, because companies can't get access to the capital they need uh, to deploy. You know, they end up having to to, uh, reduce workforce and uh, change plans to grow in the future you know, by lesser uh, amounts and things like that. So I think that ease of credit, uh, which now in these, you know, this economic time, I think we're in a pretty good place. Although you did hear of uh, federal reserve chairman, uh, former federal reserve chairman, Ben Bernanke, that he had a little trouble uh, getting his mortgage approved, which is a true story. And it's kind of unbelievable. Really?
0: I did hear that. Is that true?
2: <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely true. He gave it as an example uh, as he was speaking uh, to some investors uh, about, you know, the ease of credit. And, you know, he applied for, for, you know, to refinance his mortgage actually. And, uh, it's actually funny to even think of him as having a mortgage. You just kind of assume, you know, a guy in his position would be free and clear of debt. But, uh, but he said it actually was very tough for him to get approved and, and he had some issues with it. And he said, look, if I can't get my refi approved, you know, there's no hope for, for, uh, joe and and you know joe and harry out there in, in america to get their loans approved e- either so he said you know we have to be careful about how uh constricted that we make the credit in this country uh and so those fed policies do do kind of influence that so i would say the ease of credit is something and, and then the other thing i would say is you got to watch uh valuation um and how we're valuing. Uh, companies in the market. And I think sometimes that can play into, you know, the boom-bust cycle as well. So if you look at the internet boom, you know, Preston, you mentioned coming at the, uh, the turn of the decade, that we were valuing uh, internet companies in a way that really didn't make sense. Um, so I think those, those are some of the canaries in the coal mines uh, to look at. Your interest rates, your ease of credit, and, and, and the valuation. How sound are those valuations?
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. You can enjoy a dynamic drive and total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. Have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGBT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only aids you in your research and analysis process, but also allows for dynamic discussions? What is the return on invested capital of Adobe or millions of other prompts? Check it out today for free at Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A dot The Holy Grail of Investing, the new book by Tony Robbins and co-written by investing legend Christopher Zook, reveals the secrets of alternative investments like private equity, venture capital, energy, real estate, sports franchises, and more. It features exclusive insights from investing titans who collectively manage more than five hundred billion dollars, including Robert F. Smith, Vinod Khosla, Michael B. Kim, and many others. In the Holy Grail of Investing, you'll discover how to take advantage of the trillions flowing into private equity by becoming an owner of firms that actually manage the assets and share in the revenue they generate. How to take advantage of the two to three times higher returns of private credit as an alternative or complement to bonds how to invest in the energy evolution and ride the wave of trillions in global investments, how investments in private real estate can work as an inflationary hedge and source of tax-efficient income, and how many of the world's greatest investors thrive in both good times and bad. The Holy Grail of Investing by Tony Robbins is available now wherever books are sold. All right, back to the show. Yep. Hey, that kind of
0: reminds me of a book that I had read a couple years back. It was called the... um the Holy Grail of Macroeconomics, and the book, uh, we'll have it up on the show notes if anyone's interested in this book, but uh, the book talked about um, the, uh, the lagging economy and the lack of growth over in the Japan market, uh, and what was the root cause of what was causing that, and what it was is, um, you know, and this is really kind of a real generalization for the whole book, but basically, all these businesses had very uh, high debt on their balance sheets, and because that debt was so high, the government, as they were trying to subsidize this, basically the government was taking all that debt indirectly, was taking all that debt off of the balance sheets. And that's what had caused the the market to continue to drag at a flat rate for decades because they, the companies were so highly leveraged prior to the start of that. But a uh, inter- very interesting read uh, that kind of relates to some of the stuff that you were talking about there in your last point. So, um uh, we understand that the Fed has kept interest rates this low because of the housing market. And I, th- I think that they didn't want to um, bring the, the interest rates up higher because there was such a shock to the system back in 08. But here's my concern is they've kept interest rates for so long now. I mean, since 2008 till 2014, to borrow money, it's been so cheap. And this has just continued to persist for so long. What's the impact of that on into the future as we look at? to the next you know, five years, you know, my opinion is that the market's going to be extremely sensitive to any type of interest rate increase and that it could potentially be the catalyst that would, would make it collapse really fast as soon as you start bringing these interest rates in. But I'm real curious to hear what your opinion is on that. Do you feel that it's going to be very sensitive whenever they start to bring it in because everyone's been so accustomed to such cheap money for so long?
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Preston. I think it's something that we have to be very cautious of as an economy and I think you know it's it's hard sometimes you lose the forest for the trees sometimes as you're investing you know you want to just keep those rates low so that the companies you'd like to invest in you know can can have access and retain that access to easy credit and easy money uh, to go do the investing that they want to do if you think about um, you know Apple has you know 150 billion dollars cash on its books what a great place for a company to be in terms of a capital position and a balance sheet. You've got that cash there on your books that you can access at any time. And there's no bank that they have to pay interest to uh, to do their, their next project, right? Yeah. So their cost of capital is very low. That's a good thing. They've earned that. What's artificial is when the Fed subsidizes the economy effectively by keeping rates low at a near zero uh rate which they've done for years and years which artificially puts that access to capital on every company in america's balance sheet and so the question really is have they earned that have we earned that as an economy and i think you know you you could talk all day about the impact to it and how we're going to have to come back to reality at some point and that's that come down that i think you're talking about that you're worried about that Um, How long can we keep this going? I think the real thing we'll have to watch is inflation. Right. And so as you start to take for granted that easy access to capital, the effect of that, I think, in the long run will be that inflation will start to take off. And so I think we have to watch as inflation starts to tick up that those rates, we should really be prepared for those rates to also tick back up to kind of slow that artificial access to easy money.
0: It, it's almost, uh, Rob, it's almost like a an addiction for a small company or even a large company that if they have this exposure to cheap interest rates for an extended period of time, they grow reliant on it and they think that it's just a given. And so they start to operate in a manner that their business model is dependent on low interest rates. So as soon as that comes into play, that the interest rates are rising and they can't get that money anymore, they're not in the same position as Apple where they're sitting on that boatload of cash on their balance sheet and they just can't go out and buy at those interest rates and they're too highly leveraged and then you start to see them start dropping one, two, three and then it just kind of compounds and then that's your catalyst. So
2: That's right. And I think if I could add the corollary from from the crisis was that secretary paulson and and secretary uh geithner uh, or fed bank president geithner had to consider was the moral hazard of guaranteeing the solvency of every financial institution in the country which again could would you, be uh, artificial.
3: oh right? sorry and, uh rob could you please uh, could you please uh, explain to us the moral
2: hazard of something why yeah, absolutely. is that important so, so yeah. the moral hazard um Basically was a concept that, that during the crisis uh, became kind of the term uh, to think about in terms of should the government guarantee companies existence and solvency when those companies have made mistakes in how they've you know, behaved in terms of making financial decisions and over leveraging themselves and not, you know, holding reservoirs of cash for, for a rainy day, um, which in 2008 it, it, was, it was the rainy day of all rainy days. Um, but by doing that, by by guaranteeing their solvency, they've created this condition in the market where companies no longer have to prepare for themselves for that rainy day, and that's really the moral hazard. So it changes fundamentally how companies would operate if they know that that Uncle Sam's going to bail them out uh, whenever they make, you know, whenever they you know drive into a pothole then they'll make different decisions with their capital. They say, hey, we're, we're okay to deploy ourselves and highly leverage ourselves, you know, deploy it at, a, at a, a fast pace um, with no concern of their own, you know, solvency and, and emergency fund or, you know, capital reservoir, because Uncle Sam's going to backstop that. So sure. that's the moral hazard that, that uh, Secretary uh, Paulson wanted to avoid and, and did avoid. Um, and I use that as a corollary because I think the easy money policies of the Fed can be seen as something similar. The companies will start to depend on that easy money and and change their behavior in a way that's not fundamentally sound.
0: So, Rob, I, I got a question. This isn't something that we had uh, prepared ahead of time, but the uh, question that I got is whenever I'm looking at the market as an investor, okay, it's all about opportunity cost and looking at time now and making decisions, Okay. So whenever I do that and I look at equities and you look at where the the market is as far as like the just general price to to earnings ratio that you'd have for for an index, okay? It's giving you maybe a 5% return or somewhere in that ballpark, okay? Whenever I compare that to what I would get on like a 10-year treasury or something like that, it's below 3%. So my opportunity cost uh, from just from a purely index standpoint I'm I'm still in equities at this point because the return in the fixed income zero risk type area is you know lower and and in, in my opinion worth the the uh, trade off there. But as we look as we talk about the risk associated with how fast this market could potentially turn as soon as interest rates start coming up, is something uh, interesting that I would maybe be interested in knowing is looking at the market from an index standpoint that debt to equity ratio, okay? How has that changed over time as we talk about these businesses that would become more and more reliant on debt? Or is that something that you'd be considering at, as a risk manager at a bank, would you be looking at the index of the, the 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 debt to equity of the entire, you know, Dow or S&P 500? Is that something that you would consider and see how that's moving more to a leveraged position over time?
2: Yeah, I think that's a great question, Preston, and probably something that a lot of investors miss. Uh, but I, but I think that that leverage ratio, really, which is your 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 debt uh, ratio to your to your income, is is something that that investors should focus on, uh, because I think it it gives you a good view of have you taken on as a company have, or an economy. To your point, looking at the the whole market, have you taken on? In terms of debt, more than you can handle from an income perspective. Yeah, and I think when you when you start to do that, even if you think of in your own personal balance sheet, you know, if, if you've if you've you know, you got your, your mortgage payments, which is part of your leverage on your personal balance sheet. You've got your car payment, um, and if if you start to take out your, your home equity lines of credit, um, you know, and you, you start to you know put a student loan on there and finance different things your leverage increases and if your income doesn't increase with that or if you don't have the room within your income to add that leverage, you're in a less flexible position uh, to maneuver if things go poorly. For example, if, if you have to take a pay cut or if somebody gets sick or if you have a large capital expense, you know, your roof caves in. Um, you know, so just, just taking that own personal finance example and, and translating it to the market, which is what you did, and explain there well, Preston, um, that it applies. It absolutely applies. So I think, yeah, I think l- looking at leverage is one of those basic uh, economic fundamentals that uh, investors can miss all too often.
3: Um, Rob, I actually like to ask you a question about the stock market because clearly the interest rate and the stock market are interrelated. So the thing that Preston talked about before, he would be looking at the PE ratio, and if it's really high, say above 20, you might think that the stock market is overpriced, or if it's very low, say below 10, it might be undervalued. But do you think that we can use another parameter, like the interest rate, to uh, to predict whether or not the the stock market is going to crash or, or the opposite?
2: I think it, it definitely, you know, talking about canary in in the coal mine can be something uh, to watch. Um, I. In, in isolation, though, I would hesitate to say, you know, based on your interest rates, uh, you should be able to predict um, the directionality of, of the stock market in general. You know, I think there are some finer points and, and, and more variables that are often involved. Um, you know, it's, it's one driver, I would say, but I would hesitate to rely too heavily on it. You know, we talked a lot about the economic fundamentals that uh, the interest rate is a part of. And so it's hard to... Uh, get away from that. it's always going to be there. Um, but but I think in terms of corporate investing, looking at these companies making decisions, valuing them as you guys you know talk in detail about the the Buffett methodology and things, um, that interest rate is one part of that equation, but you're going to want to look at the the health of of the the individual company and in whole as well.
1: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors com WSB. That's fundrise.com slash WSB. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise Flagship Fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Today's show is sponsored by public.com. check out public.com. We can't say it's the highest interest rate, but it's pretty damn up there. This is a paid endorsement for public investing. 5.1% APY as of March 26, 2024 and is subject to change. A high-yield cash account is a secondary brokerage account with public investing, member FINRA slash SIPC. Funds from this account are automatically deposited into partner banks where they earn a variable interest and are eligible for FDIC insurance neither public investing nor any of its affiliates is a bank. US only. Learn more at public.com slash disclosures slash high dash yield dash account. As many of you know, I love studying businesses and networking with business owners. The more I've studied businesses, the more I've realized that starting and scaling your business is easier than ever because of companies like Shopify. Did you know that Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S.? Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify even helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. What I personally love about Shopify is that it's the turnkey solution to kickstart and grow your business, and they are totally committed to giving you the necessary tools to succeed as a business owner. Plus, they have an award-winning customer support team there to help you every step of the way, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash WSB. That's all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash WSB now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash WSB. All right, back to the show.
0: And Rob, just to kind of piggyback off of that question. So for me personally, I'm always looking at the opportunity cost because that's kind of what's giving me the driver of where do I go next or what do I transition into assuming that the capital gains and all that stuff are, are considered as well. So, you know, is, is the market, as equities climb higher? And like Stig said, they're over a PE of 20 and you, you know kind of where that's putting you at a 5% or lower, uh, you know, level and say your opportunity cost of move, moving into something that's in the fixed income realm, say inflation does happen and it's much higher and you can get a fixed income investment at 7%, you're just naturally transitioning your capital into an investment that's going to protect you in the long term. Do you, do you agree with that approach?
2: I do. And I, I like how you how you kind of uh, phrase that, Preston, I think, because that's the key to Stig's question. I think it's that interest rates are a driver but to use them for investing, it's got to be relative. And it's that opportunity cost concept that you talk about that is the key. So if you look at, you know, 10-year treasuries, you mentioned Preston, they're under three. You know, it's mid twos for that 10-year treasury, which is very closely tied to interest rates. Um, that's pretty much your 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 most, you know, your go-to conservative investment that, you know, you're going to put your money there. You're always going to get that return. So it compar- compared to what you can do in the market where there's there's volatility you know uh, there's so many other factors the uh, long-term stability of the companies you're investing in you know that those catalyst events that you talked about uh, which aren't gonna uh, impact your 10-year treasury but um, will impact your, your your stock choices and so it's that opportunity cost the other thing that that i think to, to draw out would be so if if you're confident about the solvency of your of 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 the companies you're investing in, and if they pay a good dividend, then there's always an opportunity cost of investing in treasuries and forgoing the, those dividend yields. Right? Um, as an example, if if you if you take a you know a a, a nice moderate company, uh, stable Fortune 500 a good dividend. You're probably looking at a year-over-year yield of you know above two and a half percent, right in that ballpark. So in today's interest rate environment, that beats the ten-year Treasury. Yeah, right. Oh, and exactly. that's guaranteed money as long as the company's there.
3: Uh, so Rob uh, Preston, and I uh, find that successful investors are typically shaped by a single or a few powerful investment tips that they have received. What's the best investment tip that you have received?
2: Yeah, I would say, you know, I love, I love good investing advice. I think some of the, the fundamental stuff is, is what rings true for me. So, um, you know, my, my wife's grandfather always used to say, it's not what you make, it's what you save. Uh, and you see examples of that every day. You look at high-earning people who are um, living, uh, you know, a cash flow lifestyle. They're spending every chance they get on big-ticket items. You know, they may they may as well have a, a smaller salary um, and and not be spending it. Um, I think, and you know, from an investing standpoint, you've got to have that capital to be able to to use uh, in the market. So I think it's it's really uh, important to be able to pay yourself first, take a portion of what you earn, and make sure that you're uh, investing that money, um, you know, the best you know how. And you don't have to be a uh, a Preston or a Stig type investor, or you know. Um, very well versed in in complex uh, strategies. You just have to uh, do some basics and and do a little homework. Um, and 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 again, make sure you're not living beyond your means. So I think that's what I would say. It's not what you make; it's what you save.
0: I yeah, absolutely love that advice because there's so many people out there. And I'll tell you what we get a we ask this question to everybody when they come on the show, and everyone gives us a fantastic answer. But Rob, that's so spot on because. Um, when you look at the the equation to wealth, financial wealth, it's two variables. It's what you make, it's what comes in, and it's what goes out. And so often people only focus on that very first variable, and they totally forget about the second variable, like it doesn't even exist. And they and even when they do increase that first variable, which is their income, and let's say they go from making fifty thousand to a hundred thousand dollars a year and they used to spend $45,000, and now they spend $95,000, their relative gain is literally nothing because they've just filled all that extra income into just more expenses that aren't, uh, expenses that are assets that they purchased. It's just more liabilities. So fantastic uh, recommendation, Rob. I absolutely love that.
3: Yeah, and I completely agree, Rob, because as you're saying, you don't have to be an expert to make money in the stock market. If you can set a decent amount of, uh, of money aside every month and just invest in the market. You would do fairly well before you retired,
0: for sure. Hey, I want to ask this next one. So, uh, Stig and I are really big on books. In fact, uh, our next episode is going to be a uh, book summary that we have on Peter Thiel, who's the uh, founder of PayPal, a major investor in Facebook. Um, He wrote a new book called uh, Zero to One. And Stig and I had just finished reading that book. So, our next uh, podcast is going to be basically summarizing that book and going through the key points that we learned from it. Uh, So, we're really big on reading and trying to find the best books from the most successful people out there. And so Rob, what is one of the top uh, books that you would recommend that you've read?
2: Yeah. Thanks for asking guys. And and I enjoy, you know, looking at uh, different folks reading lists as well. I would, I would go to, to uh, books by Jim Collins. So this may be a little bit off of the investor path, uh, but, but, but from what I've learned about investing, You've got to understand the fundamentals of companies, what makes some companies explode and grow and succeed, and others wither on the vine. And they have similar business models, right? So what what Jim Collins has done in a couple different books is he's compared, and he's used data-driven analysis to do these comparisons, but he's compared uh, large companies over time, and he's explored the concept of what makes certain companies do well and certain companies fade away and other companies do extremely well. And as an investor, that's what I'm really looking for is value creation. And I want companies to take my money, my capital and do well with it. And so he's got a couple books I'd recommend. Uh, The first one he wrote was called built to last. And it, and it, compared companies uh, and two good examples are Westinghouse and GE and he compared them over time, two similar large industrial companies and he compared them across a number of different factors and he answered the question why did General Electric do amazingly well and and return multiples of itself and grow multiple times uh, in its value over its lifespan Um, versus Westinghouse which uh, eventually you know was was divided up and sold off uh, and you know didn't return near the value that GE did to its shareholders what are the fundamental reasons that that GE was built to last you know created by Thomas Edison you know over a hundred years ago uh, versus Westinghouse which was also had similar roots very innovative uh, founder but didn't make it so what are those key fundamentals uh, and then he wrote another one good to great which, which looked at different companies. Wells Fargo was one where they were a super regional uh, bank that exploded to become a national powerhouse bank. So what, 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 what was it? What were the factors that took that company from being a good company in a local market, in a regional market, and, and made them a great company and returned so much to their shareholders? And then he's got a new one called Great by Choice, uh, which also looks at some variables uh, within companies. So it's I like his perspective, which goes under the hood of these companies and digs around and tries to find a data-driven reasons why these companies have done well.
0: Yeah. And hey, uh, just so the audience knows, uh, Stig and I plan on doing a summary and an episode on uh, Good to Great, because that's just, I mean, that book is really a highly successful book, has some fantastic information in it. And Rob's guidance is really hitting at the heart of what what it is that Stig and I are trying to uh, convey to our audience, which is, look at the business. Okay, don't don't. I hate using the word stock. I like to use the word business. What businesses are you buying? And Rob's recommendations there are exactly what we want people doing is. Understand the business. Understand the fundamentals of the business. Why has it become a great business, and why should you own it? So, I think that those book recommendations are fantastic. We'll have those on the show notes for people. If you uh, just want to, maybe you're listening to this in the car and you want to come back and uh, you know find out if you didn't remember the names of that. So. Uh, what we're going to do right now is every week uh, we get uh, questions that come in and we've selected the the question for this week. So we're going to go ahead and uh, go through that right now. Okay. So here's the uh, question from Joe Rizzo. And we really appreciate uh, Joe for uh, recording this question on our website, which you can go to asktheinvestors.com and record your question. And if your uh, question gets played on the air, we'll send you a free signed copy of our book, The Warren Buffett Accounting Book. So here's Joe's question.
2: Hello, Preston and Stig. This is Joe Rizzo, 2013 graduate from Naval Academy, just starting out in my professional career, trying to save money and invest like Warren Buffett. So my first question would be, if a company has a high PE, you know, maybe 40 to 60 range, but it also has tremendous EPS growth, so, so, you know, maybe 30 to to 40% EPS growth per year, would this still be an investment that Buffett was would be interested in? Or would the high P.E. automatically roll out the company even though the growth is so high? Thanks for your show. It's really, really interesting and uh, great learning.
0: So, Joe, that's a fantastic question. Uh, This is a question that Stig and I actually get quite a bit. And what we'd like to say is that for for the way that Warren Buffett invests and the approach that we also implement... Finding the company that's going to be the next Microsoft or the next Apple is sometimes a difficult task to do. And whenever you're talking with a company that has a PE ratio that's extremely high like that, the company's earnings have to continue to grow and compound year after year after year in order to account for that high price and that high premium that you're paying to own the stock. So what I would suggest, if you're really interested in investing in growth picks, Benjamin Graham in the Intelligent Investor uh, had an equation. Now, a lot of people don't realize this because a lot of people think that Benjamin Graham had this intrinsic value calculation that talked about value picks. But the equation in his book is actually for growth picks. And a lot of people don't realize that. So what Stig and I are going to do is in the show notes, we're going to put this equation that Benjamin Graham has from the Intelligent Investor, and we'll put it into the show notes for this episode six. So if anyone's interested in seeing that equation and applying this equation to a growth pick, we'll have it there for you. With that said, I would say that your probability of being able to pick a high growth company is not very good in the long term. Okay, And if it's something that you're looking at for a short-term gain or something like that, it might be uh, useful. Um, I don't have very much luck in uh, applying a growth strategy and picking companies that will continue to progress at a rapid pace. So I don't really do that. But that doesn't mean that there's people out there that can do it. But what I would recommend is use that equation because what that equation is going to do is it's going to help put you in the ballpark of finding a company that you're not paying too high of a premium for based on that company's growth.
3: So uh, Joe, uh, I agree. This is a really good question. Uh, I would like to like to start uh, to discuss the PE ratio you were talking about. So for some of our listeners that might think, well, is a PE ratio of 40 or 60 is that high. Um, so, for instance, a PE ratio of 40, that would mean that you need to pay $40 for $1 uh, of that company's profit. And uh, just to give you an example, uh, for instance, a company like Facebook, they have a PE of 85 at the moment. So, when we're talking about growth picks, it's not necessarily small companies, it could also be big companies. Um, but when we're talking about um, a very high price to earnings, again, that means that you're paying a very high price for money that you're not certain of will return to you as a shareholder. The thing I would like to uh, to discuss is that while we like growth, uh, the more the better. There's really no guarantee that this growth will continue. And this brings another problem because this company is not stable. As you might know, Warren Buffett does not like to invest in unstable companies simply because it's very hard to value unstable companies. If you don't know how much a company is going to make in a year or three years, five years from now, um, it's really hard to estimate what the what the value is of the company. And if you don't know what the value of the company is, it's very hard to uh, to uh, to buy stock. So
0: I'm going to conclude real fast with a simple quote that Benjamin Graham, which was Warren Buffett's professor, um, had said. And that's the difference between investing and speculating. And whenever you're looking at the difference between those two, Speculating is whenever you're reliant. It has to happen that in the future your earnings are going to get better than they already are. Okay. But investing is whenever the earnings could stay exactly where they're at right now and just continue to persist. That's the difference between investing and speculation. Okay. And whenever you're looking at a high PE company, those earnings are going to have to continue to get better and better, and better in order to justify the price that you're paying for it. So it becomes very speculative, which is high risk. So we'll conclude uh, by answering your question with that. Um, Fantastic question. And we really appreciate that. And we hope to have more in the future. So uh, Rob, did you have anything that you wanted to add or uh, throw out there on the question?
2: No, I would just say thanks for having me guys. Love the show. Big fan. Would love to come back.
0: Well, you're definitely welcome to come back uh, anytime, Rob. And uh, as things continue to progress in the market, we'll probably bring you back in to talk about this specific area because this is something that we're very interested in and, and would like to continue to track. So, would really, be great. Yeah. Really appreciate it. It was really fun. Great catching up with you because we haven't talked in a few years. And- uh, We really appreciate everyone out there. If you guys are enjoying the show, please go to iTunes, leave us a review, um, send your questions to us, and we'll be sure to answer those on the next show. So uh, see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to The Investor's Podcast.